I don't know how many of you have ever done a personality test, but it's pretty common. It's been going on for several decades now where various agencies have come out with personality tests. And I remember about 20 years ago now when I enrolled in my doctoral program down in Virginia, that one of the courses I had to do required me to take all sorts of personality tests and then write reports on them. And they can be kind of interesting to assess yourself and evaluate yourself. One of the more well-known ones is the the Myers-Briggs personality test. And that sort of comes up with 16 different personality types. And they're all given names. There's the inspector, the commander, the composer, the visionary, the performer, et cetera. I don't even remember which one of those I, I scored as, but it's, it's an interesting assessment. There's other tests that grade you with an A, a B, a C, a D. They sort of put you in different personality types. And again, these are, these are interesting to do. If you've never done one, it's not a bad idea to do one. It just kind of gives you some, some way of perhaps understanding a little bit better why you think the way you do and so forth. I must admit, though, that after having done several of them during my doctoral coursework, that after a while, I, I kind of got a little fed up with it. You feel like you're staring at your navel all the time, just sort of looking within, and that gets a little old, um, just thinking about yourself and evaluating yourself and trying to understand yourself. It's interesting for a little while, but after a while, it gets a little boring, frankly, because we tend to be, well, frankly, a little more boring than we might think we are. But one of the things that Christians often, as much as I'm in favor of self-assessment, one of the things that Christians often overlook are the discussions surrounding our identity in Christ and really adopting a gospel-shaped personality. And I want to address this question with you today. Do I have a gospel-shaped personality? Is my thinking, my outlook, my mindset shaped more by my parents, my ethnicity, my educational background, Or is my personality, if we could call it that, shaped by Christ? Have I found myself at a place in my Christian journey where I've sufficiently adopted the values, the virtues, the characteristics, the mission, the calling of Christ, that fundamentally I have a gospel-shaped personality? This should fascinate us far more than any Myers-Briggs test or any other test that might assess our personality. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and we've been doing a series in our church, studying chapter by chapter through the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul offers more detail why he had been attacked by some in the church. So just by way of reminder, 2 Corinthians is in large part a defensive work. So Paul was an apostle. He'd written a few letters to this church in Corinth. Some people had taken issue with him and they'd attacked him. So 2 Corinthians is a bit of a defense. He's defending himself. He's reminding them of why he had written to them this painful letter, which was the previous letter he'd written, why he had to confront them. He's defending himself against some allegations. You might think, well, that's kind of self-centered. Well, perhaps you might think so, but Paul was an apostle, and if he allowed his reputation to be trashed, if he allowed himself to be bushwhacked, then that would reduce his ministry capacity for the broader churches that he was responsible for. Plus it was just a justice issue and a truth issue here that he wanted to address. So he does spend the first seven chapters and then 
later in the book, here and there, he, always, he comes back to this idea of defending himself. And in this chapter, he's offering more detail why he had defended himself from some who had falsely accused him in the church. And as he defends himself, listen to this carefully, as he defends himself, he also helps us to see the need for a gospel-shaped personality. So he emphasizes characteristics and qualities about his life that by God's grace, the Lord had wrought in him that we should also long for. He talks about bold standards, the need to be marked by consistent principles, the need to be faithful in service. So this is what we need to discuss today and ask ourselves, are these true of me? If I want a gospel-shaped personality, do I have bold standards or am I timid? Do I sort of change my standards depending on the circumstances? Am I consistent in the principles that I live by so that even if people throw stones, I don't change, I'm consistent to my principles? And am I faithful in the areas of service that God has designed me for? This is really important. So we want to unpack these three matters this morning. And the first one is the issue of bold standards. So we're going to ask ourselves this question. Do we live by Christ's bold standards? Do you, listener, live by Christ's bold standards? We're going to start off in verse 1. And here we're going to see Paul kind of letting us in on some behind-the-scenes information. He had been accused by some of his opponents of being bold in his writing, but timid in person. This is an ad hominem attack. They were attacking the man. Rather than listening to what he had to say, they're like, oh, do you notice this Paul guy? Whenever he writes us, he's like a tough guy. But when you meet him in person, he's, he's kind of cowardly and timid. This was the lie that they were circulating about Paul. In other words, what were they doing? They were trying to say, he's a poser, or he's not genuine, or he's a hypocrite. Does this sound familiar? Have you ever had to confront someone about a matter in their life, and instead of actually interacting about the issue, they just attack you? They attack, well, your timing wasn't good, or your tone of voice wasn't good, or your face didn't look friendly, or, well, you didn't pray with me first. They, they, they avoid the issue, and they, they try to create sort of a distraction. And this is for sure what was happening with Paul. People who are bold in truth are often attacked. If you're a bold person, you just tend to tell the truth a lot. I'm sure you've been attacked many times. Timid people are never attacked. Nobody, nobody goes after the timid people. And by the way, this is why many Christians choose to be timid. This is why many pastors and churches are absolutely silent in the face of all the foolishness that's going on in our culture today. Because no one's going to attack you for that. It's easier to have your church closed. It's easier just to place smiley faces on your social media. It's it's easy to pay lip service to the benevolent rulers that are governing us. Easy to do that. People will, even the secularists will applaud you for that. Which should tell us something, by the way. If your message is being applauded by secular people, something's probably not right. 
Many Christians are masters of avoiding conflict at all costs, and they do it by being timid, but not so with Paul. Not so with Paul. Here's what he says. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, and now he's speaking sarcastically, who am timid when face-to-face with you, but bold toward you when away, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. You know some people that live by the standards of this world in the church? Think of a few. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Not guns and swords and cannons, fighter jets. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. He acknowledges their criticism. And then he pushes back against it with a warning. Oh, you think I'm bold in my writing? You might be surprised how bold I'm going to be with you if you don't get your act together. And then he establishes the basis of his boldness, his approach. Paul's desire was not to draw attention to himself. His desire was not to be the the Chuck Norris of early Christianity, a tough guy. Intimidating people by his martial art abilities or his physique He was bold because he understood certain things in the spiritual realm. Now, all of these, he says, are rooted in humility and gentleness. So he wants wants to be humble. It's not about him. He's not not trying to be prideful. He wants to be humble like Christ is humble. Even though Christ's humility was often manifested with, you know, whipping people to chase them out of the temple and calling the religious leaders whitewashed sepulchers. I think sometimes we have more of a, Victorian era notion of humility than we do a biblical notion of humility. Humility is not being weak weak and feeble. Humility is being oriented toward the glory of God. But he was also gentle. Now, this is what Paul understood as the basis of his approach. A couple things I want to pull out of the text. He understood that the church is waging a spiritual battle. Do you understand that? Do you understand that every moment of every day, of every year, of every decade, of every century, of every millennia, the devil is trying to destroy God's people? Do you actually understand that? That we are always in a spiritual warfare. Sometimes we'll say, oh, I think I'm in a spiritual warfare. We always are in a spiritual warfare. This is a spiritually charged world. And therefore we cannot play games We cannot afford to assume the best of lost people. 
This is a tragic mistake that many in the church are making today. We cannot afford to assume the best of a world within which we are doing spiritual warfare. Do you, do you honestly think that the world around us wants the church to flourish? On a good day, they could care less about the church. This is evident in how we're treated in relationship to other businesses or school openings. We're always last on the list. But we're in a spiritual warfare and we're not playing games. Paul understood that. More believers need to remind themselves of that. Secondly, our weapons work to destroy strongholds. And what are we fighting against? We're fighting against arguments and pretensions from the world. We're fighting against lies. Twisted worldviews. Half-truths, which are lies. We're fighting against words. And in order to fight back, we need to take our own thoughts captive, meaning that we need to think Christianly church. We need to think in biblical categories. We need to make sure we are approaching life from a Christian worldview. And it's clearly evident that the vast majority, I'd say well over 90% of the church in Canada does not have an adequate biblical worldview. Oh, they know a few scriptures and they know where to sit, what to say and how to sing on Sunday morning. But they don't process law and politics and education and economic issues and issues of justice from a Christian perspective because the world's been whispering their arguments and their pretensions in their ears for a long time and they've grown to believe them. We fight back by subjecting our thoughts to Christ and by speaking the truth. The war that we are fighting is a truth war. That's what it's about. We don't need to throw punches. We don't need to get our guns shined up. We're fighting a truth war. Everything that's going on in the world today is about words, lies, and truth in conflict with one another. And when the church goes silent and doesn't preach the whole counsel of God's word or speak into the culture issues of the day, all the world is left with is the lies. And the media loves to propagate the lies. And the university faculties love to propagate the lies. Everybody's telling lies, but we fight back with truth. This is a word war. And we also fight back through personal obedience to the word of God. If we are disobedient, we're part of the problem. So we commit ourselves to being obedient to the things of God. Christian activism, Christian engagement, Christian missionary service then, is both hands-on, feeding the poor, reaching out to the widow and the orphan. We're giving of our time, talents, and treasures to the purposes of the kingdom. But we're also using our words 
to demolish every argument and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. You receive knowledge through words. And you lack knowledge through lack of words or lies. I think many Christians fail to understand the power of words in biblical theology and in the world around them. But just think about this for a moment. The world was brought into existence by words. Think about that. And the world will come to an end by words. God spoke it into existence and he will speak it out of existence by words. Words are used to deliver the gospel message. If you're a Christian, you were converted because someone spoke truth to you and God used those words to convict you and to cause you to repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And then words continue to build our faith. This is why we preach. This is why we preach. Even in a society that's starting to say, words aren't important, we're into images, we're into metaphor. No, the church continues to preach words because words are used by God to solidify our faith and build us up. Words bring lies and death or they bring truth and hope. You ever meet people who are very damaged, a very low view of themselves and are incompetent in relationships, maybe are mired in deep depression and you sit down and you start to hear their story and you hear about some mother or father or teacher that screamed at them and told them they were useless and unloved, unlovable, told them lies about themselves. They may never even have been slapped. But words have shaped their world in a negative way. And in biblical counseling, we bring words into the mix that are true to bring about healing. God's words heal and restore and refresh and retread people. Words can be used to blaspheme God, or as we've exercised this morning, words can be used to worship God. We can come to a place like this and we just sing words, just sounds coming out of our mouths. And God is honored. The power of words are tremendous. Paul spoke words of truth and he was bold in his communication. We need to do the same. Our personality should be shaped around Christ. His method should increasingly become our methods. His outlook, our outlook. And part of a gospel-shaped personality is to be a person that speaks the truth in love, in gentleness, with humility. If we cannot find ourselves in a place where we are bold in our communication of the truth, we will not survive in the spiritual battle that we're in. We will be overcome with lies. We're in a time of tribulation. It's going to get worse. Maybe it'll get better for a few months or a few years. Who knows? But the Bible's clear. It doesn't get better toward the end. It gets worse. And the Christian needs to fight back with words. And folks, you can't hide behind me or other bold people you know. 
You need to adopt these things for yourself. They need to become part and parcel of your personality. It's not, well, you know, Aaron seems to be kind of bold. We'll let him do that. Or, you know, my, my spouse is kind of bold. I'll, I'll let them do the speaking. Or I, this Christian superhero I know is just, they're bold, so I just kind of listen to their stuff. We all must be bold and courageous with our words because we understand that this is part of the spiritual battle that we're fighting. Words will destroy the strongholds of the world. The arguments and pretensions of the world that set themselves up against God. Secondly, we could ask ourselves the question of principles. Are we consistently principled? Are we consistent in the way that we live our lives? The principles of Christ, are they evident in us? Verse 7 and following reads, You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. So again, you know, hu- human beings have a, uh, a natural bent uh, to oppose authority. And it happens in the church too. It was happening in the early church. Paul had been given authority to lead and guide the church. And some people were like, who do you think you are? We have a resistance towards spiritual authority. People have no problem with spiritual authority as long as they're not authoritative. This is why people prefer the passive, baby-kissing, ever-smiling, diminutive pastor in many churches. Now, I like kissing babies, by the way. I find them to be adorable. But if you're going to exercise your responsibilities as a pastor, an elder, a leader, a future leader. You need to get over yourself and allow God to use you. And part of that means speaking the truth in love. Sometimes you're going to be misunderstood. Sometimes people will abandon you. Oh, well, your job is to speak the truth. Here, Paul was taking some heat because he actually was exercising his office of authority that the Lord had given to him. Now listen to this a little bit further. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. It's not my goal. It's not my goal to frighten you into obedience. And then he he comments on one of the other accusations that were being made about him. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Again, avoiding the content and attacking his methodology. He says, such people should realize that what we are in our letters, when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. In order to dismiss Paul's words, his opponents chose to belittle him. And they attacked, in his case, apparently his physical characteristics I don't know, maybe he was very short or weak or maybe he walked with a limp or something. They attacked his physical characteristics and they attacked his speaking style. Always well written, but his sermons, not that great. They were attacking him, avoiding the truth. 
Remember early on? Oh, he's, 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 he's kind of timid in person. Oh, he's just a little guy. He's, he's not a good orator. They were attacking him to avoid the substantive issues. They were judging his appearance. But what does he say? You are judging, back in verse 7, you are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should again consider that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. In other words, your physical stature has nothing to do with it. Your speaking skills have nothing to do with it. Whether you tend to be a little more kind and timid in person or in writing, it's irrelevant. He lived according to Christ. He reminds all of us that our power, our spiritual resources come from belonging to Christ. They don't come from your physique. They don't come from your economic status. They don't come from your gender. Our power comes from Christ. So whether you're this tall and stutter or this tall and can command thousands of people, if you're powered by Christ, you're where you should be. And you can be used of by God significantly. All of our power comes from belonging to Christ. His letters and his messages flowed from his consistent commitment to letting Christ's power flow through him. And this is why, despite the accusations, he could always boast of consistency. This is one of life's greatest virtues, consistency. You don't want to be consistently wrong, of course. But being consistent is where you win in the long run. It's where you win in the long run. Being consistent in your truth, consistent in your preaching, consistent in your lifestyle. Obviously, there's going to be exceptions where you mess up. But consistently, consistency. Sometimes Christians are inconsistent because their words and deeds aren't powered by Christ. And I would argue that if your words and deeds aren't powered by Christ, you are inevitably going to become inconsistent at some point in time. I have a friend of mine, love the guy, but he's got issues. He's inconsistent when he preaches or teaches. He often says different things. And I believe it's because he's trying to appease his hearers rather than bringing people back to the word of God. This is a temptation in Christian ministry. I don't know if I should say that or do that or stand for that. I might get verbally slapped around. Just be consistent. Speak the truth in love. Do it repeatedly, year after year after year. People can attack your stature, your speaking abilities, your personality characteristics. Oh, he's too timid, he's too bold, whatever. At the end of the day, you will bear fruit because you have spoken the truth consistently. consistency. So building principled consistency into your personality helps to shape a gospel-type personality. Third, we could ask the question, are we being faithful in our sphere of service? Verse 12 and following reads, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. So when you're serving, it's not about trying to measure up to someone else's stature. 
When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. I think that's, I don't know, I find that almost somewhat humorous, (laughs) but also just very true. Oftentimes people create a certain persona for themselves. It's often really just a, a cheap knockoff of something that's going on in society or culture. And they create a persona of themselves that they think will bring them success. And then they compare themselves to themselves in order to commend themselves. And that's not wise, he said. So the standard of comparison for serving Christ is not other people. You don't need to compare yourself to other people. And it certainly is not even measuring up to our own goals. You know, goal setting is a good thing. I would advocate for that. But we have to be careful that our goals are actually rooted in Christ because if we're just establishing our own precedent and then trying to measure up to that, how do we know we're measuring up to that which we should be measuring up to? Then in verse 13, it says, we, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service God himself has assigned to us a sphere that also includes you. So God has put us on a mission. This is our sphere of service. And each of us is kind of broadly in the same sphere, but we also have our own spheres of service. We're gifted differently. We have different stories. God uses each person in the church differently. We all know that. There's nobody that's alike. Everybody's unique, which is kind of cool. Everybody's unique. And that is assigned to us by God. And that's... That's the standard we aim for. So your standard of service is to serve to the best of your ability in whatever area God has gifted you for and to be okay with that. We are not going too far in our boasting as would be the case if we had not come to you for we did not get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. We don't take credit for other people's spheres of service. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will be greatly expanded or will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. So there's nothing wrong with asking God to expand your sphere of service and use you in a greater way. That's fine. For we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So the logic here is that some people set their own standards for themselves, compare themselves to others. Others understand that their sphere of service and influence comes from Christ, and they want to flourish in that. It's also appropriate to ask God to expand your service, to give you greater influence, more fruit. And at the end of the day, when it comes to boasting about that, all glory goes back to God. So that's kind of the the logic of the text. Our standard is Christ. Each of us must work within the limits set for us by the Lord. And if you've studied the spiritual gifts of scripture, the ministry gifts that is, you'll know that God has made some to be teachers and preachers and encouragers and administrators and servants 
and great near of discernment or exhortation and giving and on and on and on and on and on. Helps. There's many different ways that we can express our spiritual gifts. And then we also have our unique talents. So this morning, I wouldn't say music is a spiritual gift. It's more of a talent. But when you combine the talent of being able to play an instrument with, let's say, the gift of leadership or service, this is a wonderful way of blending your talents and your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ. Others have gifts in the area of medicine or law or teaching or acts of service that they can bring in and blend them with their spiritual gifts and use them to build up the body of Christ. Each of us have an assignment given to us by God. I remember when I was about, I guess around 18, 19 years old, I had just gone to Bible college and I was wanting to serve the Lord more fully in my church. But I didn't know what my spiritual gifts were. I'd never really been taught about that. No one really sat down and said, Aaron, we kind of think you're good at this or that. I was certain, you might find this humorous, I was certain that I never wanted to be a lead pastor. I was certain about that. I thought that was kind of boring. Sometimes the Lord surprises you. In my teen years, I was certain that I would never want to speak in front of people. I was petrified of the notion of speeches or public speaking. I mean, if I was told in September I was doing a speech in November, it was like sleepless nights for two months. The Lord was starting to help me to overcome those fears. But when I was young, I just didn't really know what my sphere of service was. So I just started serving various places in the church. Kind of, if there's an opening, I'll sign up for it. And very soon what happens is you, you start to realize, okay, this, this ministry charges my battery and this one just depletes it. And this ministry, I'm affirmed. In this ministry, no one says anything. In this ministry, I'm bearing fruit. In this ministry, I, I'm not. And through these experiential encounters, you, you become more and more aware of how God has wired you. But if you want to serve the Lord, there can, always, there can almost be a guilt there. Well, Lord, I want to serve you in every way. I, I, I know you've kind of given me some gifts in this area, but I'd really like to be like this person too or like this person. And we can often expand our sphere of service, but there's always going to be limits. And I would say probably around the time, I was talking to Pastor Chris about this this week, probably around the time that I turned 30-ish is when I finally started to be okay with the fact that I wasn't going to have all the gifts and I wasn't going to be able to do everything that I really wanted to do for Christ. But the Lord gave me a peace and contentment to simply serve in the areas that he had assigned me to and just to be okay with that. And then to build and rally a team of people around me that could compensate for my weaknesses. We all have a sphere of service. And when we serve as unto the Lord, the Lord will expand the fruit that we bear. And we don't need to compare ourselves to other people. There's some people in this church that have incredible gifts and abilities. And sometimes I look at them, man, I wish I could do that. I wish I was that kind of person. But that's not the way God has wired me. So we each work within the limits set for us by the Lord. And if we have an assignment, could we not assume that we will gain appropriate resources to 
successfully fulfill our assignment? I think so. If the Lord is going to call us, he's going to resource us. He's going to give us the spiritual strength and know-how, the right people. He's going to give us the time, the talents, the financial wherewithal to do what he has called us to do. And when we are successful, we don't need to boast about someone else's work and try to take credit for it as if for our own. Paul warns against that. Nor do we, nor should we be, should we lack contentment in our area of service to the Lord? What would be the hindrances then to being used of by the Lord? Well, not knowing your sphere. So you need to discover it through service and listen to what God's people say in response to your service. Listen to how it charges your battery or depletes your battery. Look for the fruit that God will bear as you serve him in the area that he has designed you to be. But it's a hindrance if you don't know your sphere. It's also a hindrance if you're always wanting more than you have received. Oh, I, I wish I was a great counselor, but I'm not. I, I wish I could lead in the church, but no one's asked me. I wish I could play an instrument and be on the stage, lead God's, but, I, but it's just not my thing. You have to just like, be okay with how God has wired you and maximize your talents for the glory of God. Don't live your life comparing yourself to other people. That is a huge burden to bear. bear. You'll also find it to be a hindrance if you try to take credit for someone else's work. Glory hogs, I call them. Oftentimes people in higher levels of leadership, it's like no matter what happens in the church, it was them that accomplished it. No. I'm the lead pastor of this church. I can take credit for like one or 2% of the things that take place in this church. So many other people are serving behind the scenes, up front and center. I can't take credit for it. Give them the credit. Give credit to whom credit is due. But then ultimately we give credit to God, right? And we fail if we fail to give glory to God for our accomplishments. So look back at verse 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you've done well, yeah, people are going to probably encourage you for that. That's okay. But ultimately, God gets the glory. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. A little reminder there. Whatever gifts you have, because the Lord gave them to you. It's your stewardship. And if God has designed you in a certain way to serve, and you bear some fruit from that, it's okay for someone to come up to you and say, hey, I really appreciate what you did or what you said or your presence in that situation. But ultimately, we give glory to the Lord. These are all elements of building a gospel-shaped personality profile, which is far better than any assessment that you could possibly have. So do you have a gospel-shaped personality profile? Are these characteristics present in your life? as they were in the Apostle Paul's life? They should be. And when they are, let's make sure that we use our talents and our abilities for the honor and glory of the Lord 
and give him the honor that is due his wonderful name for using us in some small way.